We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Philippians. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your chair or the chair next to you. We invite you to go ahead and take that out. You're also welcome to take that with you today. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We'll be on page 982 if you're using those Bibles under your chairs. The book of Philippians and chapter 4. To be human is to be mentally active. Uh, We're always thinking about something. And one of our favorite mental activities for most of us is worry. We're constantly thinking about the tasks we still haven't gotten done, the things that could go wrong in the future, relationships and unresolved conflict that still haven't been taken care of. And while that may ebb and flow in your life, there may be seasons where there's more of it or less of it, uh, it doesn't take much to get it started and for you to kind of go down that path of worry and give a lot of your mental energy to it. To say the least about it, it's at least, it's tiring, right? It's tiring to always have that going on in your mind. And sometimes you wish you could just treat it like a bad television show and just turn it off, right? Just give it a break. Well, there are uh, actually a plethora of methods out there today that are trying to give you a way to turn your brain off, basically, to be able to have rest from your worrisome thoughts. And a lot of them are rooted, actually, in very ancient practices associated with Buddhist meditation. And so a lot of these meditative practices, the goal is to empty your mind and to transcend your thoughts so that you can become one with uh, kind of the God or whatever the one is that's behind all of material existence. Um, It's a way to kind of close the eyes of your mind. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a Christian author in the early 1900s, pointed out how in a lot of Eastern religion, the saints are actually depicted with their eyes closed. They, They were transcending material existence and achieving a kind of tranquility and peace through that. And that is one way to deal with undesirable thoughts, right? If you live life with your eyes closed, you no longer have to see the evil, the stressing, the worrisome things that are out there in the world. And let's face it, there are plenty of those things, right? But if you walk through life with your eyes closed, you also lose the ability to see a beautiful sunset, to see a flower, to see your neighbor, even. If you're looking at something disgusting, true peace comes not from closing your eyes, but by replacing it with something truly beautiful. Chesterton goes on to contrast these saints of the East with those who were more under the influence of Christianity in the West, who were always depicted with their eyes open, their eyes looking at a world that, while marred by sin, still did not fail to reveal the goodness of its creator and the redemption that he was bringing about in the world. There is still a truly good to look at. And what we're going to see in the passage we're looking at today is that if you want real peace, the solution is not to try to empty your mind. It's to fill your mind with what is truly good. Try to leave your brain empty, and your worrisome thoughts will always find their way back in. There's plenty of room for them, right? But if you fill your mind with the truly good, you'll leave no vacancies for worry. So if you want peace, fill your mind with the good. Think on the good, practice the good, and peace will follow. Look with me at Philippians chapter 4. I'll read starting in verse 8 and ending in verse 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, 
and the God of peace will be with you. So the first thing we're directed to in verse 8 is to think about these things, to think on the good. And the good is described here using a number of different uh, words. It's described as true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. First, whatever is true. How much of our lack of peace in life is basically rooted in the fact that we think about things that simply aren't true? We allow false reports to spread about people through gossip, and it strains our relationships because we give vent to these things that aren't true. We even entertain thoughts in our own mind about our enemies that simply aren't true. Like, is it really true that that person you're in a conflict with always is tooting their own horn? No, like you could think of times where they actually have given credit to others and perhaps even to you. Is it really true that if your spouse, your boyfriend or girlfriend, doesn't call you or get home at the time that you expected, that they're probably cheating on you? No, like they've proven themselves trustworthy. Think about those things. Is it really true that if you didn't get a better job, that your life would just head into a tailspin and end in misery? No, like you can probably think of ways that God could even be using your current job or a future job to, to grow you and to change you for the better. Think about what is actually true. What is actually true about this person? What is actually true about the scenario I'm in? That's what I should be giving my thoughts to, not what I speculate might be true in the future. The second thing is whatever is honorable. Uh, this is a word that's translated elsewhere as dignity. Uh, it's a, a kind of an appropriate seriousness for the occasion. Uh, God is a God who laughs. God is a God who gives us reasons to laugh. And yet there is a kind of appropriate dignity that comes from communion with a holy God, right? We understand there are certain things that are worthy of serious consideration and serious engagement. Whatever is just, uh, justice is kind of the way the world is supposed to be. Probably any number of us can rattle off a bunch of things that we find to be unjust about the world, many of them involving personal offenses and things that bother me and that I don't like. But what is a positive vision of of justice? What is the world the way that it is supposed to be? A boss intentionally limits their profits in order to pay their employees fairly. You take your car to the auto repair shop and they just fix your car. They don't give you a list of six other things that you could pay them to fix that really aren't broken, right? They fix your car for a fair price. The neighborhood gets better without the poor being driven out. Orphans have fathers and mothers and homes. Strong schools are provided for all the children of the city. Individuals and institutions are publicly repenting for both systemic and personal racism. Employees actually trust their bosses and like their jobs and go to work and do it honestly. Justice, the way the world is supposed to be. Whatever is pure, purity is the opposite of mixture or an ulterior motive. It's when someone tells someone else they're beautiful because they are, not because they're trying to get something out of them or finagle their way in or or achieve political favor, spin things in a certain way. It's when we worship God because he's worthy of it. Not so we can feel like one of the morally upright religious people or so we can get blessing from God or heaven when we die. It's when we use sex not as something to exploit but as a way to give my body to another and only to someone who I'm ready to give my entire life to in a covenant of marriage. Purity, no mixture. 
As the list continues, the focus kind of broadens. It goes to whatever is lovely, whatever is rightly evoking of a pleasurable sensation, a pleasurable response, the beautiful weather, the, the, the beauty of City Hall at midday, the, the beautiful sunset, right? The, these lovely things that God has put all throughout creation. Whatever is commendable, not just what's acceptable, but whatever you would point at and say, yes, that, be like that, we need more of that, worthy of commendation. And then he kind of keeps going here and broadens it even further. He says, um, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, in other, in other words, if I've forgotten anything on this list, think about these things. So the question is, is this what's filling your mind? Are these things what your mind is bursting at the seams with? And if they're not, then what is filling your mind? The company you keep, the books you read, the TV shows you watch, the social media that you take in, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, what is it filling your mind with? Is it filling it with the good? Because the reality is, those things that you take in, they do get in, right? They do fill your mind in some ways. Sometimes we think, yeah, I watch this TV show and it's kind of garbage, but I, I, I don't watch it for the garbage, I just watch it for mindless entertainment. It's a bit like saying, yeah, I eat a lot of chocolate cake, but I don't eat it for the calories, I eat it because it tastes good. <laughs> calories are still going to get in, right? The reality is, we take thoughts in, they take up residence in our mind, right? Unless we're fighting them in some way, or unless we're abstaining from them. Is that six-hour Netflix binge making you more sensitive to the good? Or is it simply numbing you? You need to think intentionally about these things and about what you're filling your mind with. And these criteria here can kind of give you a filter for what you're allowing in. What are you filling your mind with? And is it the truly good? When you do that, you realize it's both exclusive and inclusive. On the one hand, this is a very exclusive standard. It's saying fill your mind with the truth, which means there is such a thing as falsehood. Saying fill your mind with just with what is just, which means injustice is really a thing, right? So Paul, the author of this letter, expected these words to have meaning, that it's possible that something be this and that other things not be this, and you should fill your mind with whatever is truly good. On the other hand, it's very inclusive, because he says it's whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is good, whatever is pure. And so he's not saying something like, only take in so-called Christian music, only take in so-called Christian movies. Say, no, whatever. And so this filter of the good filters out a lot of junk, but it doesn't discriminate as to the sources of the treasure, right? It's, it's whatever is honorable, whatever is good, that's what you need to be filling your mind with, which does make our jobs a little harder because it means you can't just filter it by saying, well, is this Christian or is this non-Christian? I'm a Christian. If you saw some of the art I produce, it's not pretty, right? Like, if I made a movie or I wrote a song or I painted a painting, it's, it, I'm, I'm not a good artist, right? So just being a Christian doesn't mean the stuff you produce is good. A lot of times, people who don't know Jesus live in God's world and are better at actually waking us up to its realities. It's also not as simple as saying, is this positive or negative? Does this, is, is this a provoking positive feelings or not? There, there's positive things out there that aren't true and honorable, Right? So, easy example, think of a movie like Wedding Crashers. Positive in some ways, right? It has a happy ending, it's kind of got a feel-good thing. But it presents a lifestyle that's basically bereft of honor as though it's a good thing and something worth emulating. 
There's even artwork that's popular among some Christians that's very bright and kind of positive and and feel good, but it it lacks a certain level of truth, right? Like, where's the reality of the fall? Where's the reality of suffering and sadness in the world we live in? Put that kind of artwork up against a Lord of the Rings, let's say, or up against a a Rembrandt, Monet, Cezanne, you know, these paintings and these movies that have positive endings and a positive message, but are are happening as though it's, it's real. You know, there's something true about this that's actually getting me further into to what is really good. It's not even as simple as saying what movies have profanity or what movies don't. You know, you have to exercise discernment with that stuff and be honest about what you can handle. And we're not going to be releasing an email this week, here's the movies you're allowed to watch, here's the movies you're not allowed to watch. Christians have gotten weird about that stuff in the past. We, we should be hesitant to pass judgment too quickly on what someone else can handle, but you do have to be honest about what you can handle and be honest about, is this really promoting the good in my life? Is this really f- filling my mind with truth? And there is even a positive place for negative things, negative thoughts, tragedy. Uh, Picasso's Guernica p- depicts the chaos of war. Uh, a movie like Requiem for a Dream, which I don't necessarily recommend watching, is incredibly graphic, but in movies like that that present... Uh, the reality of what happens when we give our worship to substitute gods and the havoc that that wreaks on our lives. Abraham Kuyper once said that sometimes the job of art is to show man the image of his folly, that he might depart from evil. Okay, so there's a reason sometimes to, to watch something that depicts evil for what it is, but the point is so that we might depart from it. So it's not the kind of thing you want to be immersing yourself in. If all you ever do is watch Requiem for a Dream and see, you know, look at Guernica or whatever, you're going to lose sight of the fact that we do live in a world that was created good and a world in which Jesus is making all things new. There really is a good, right? And what God is saying here is whatever is good, whatever brings that through, whatever represents that, think about those things. And while it's whatever is good, I'd be remiss not to mention some of the basic ways that you can be consistently thinking about what is good. Like, read the Bible, right? It's the one place you'll go, and you'll find positive and negative things in there. You'll find things in there that even feel a little obscene, right? But they're all bringing forward what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure. Every word of Scripture are the words of God. You can go there and know that you are finding the truly good. Go to church, go to your small group, pray, right? Like these are basics, right? But these are basic things that we often miss and fill our lives with things that aren't true and honorable and just and pure. And these are easy things that you can just plug yourself into to fill your mind with what is truly good. Read excellent books, right? Like books about God, books that are Bible-saturated, God-centered good theology, not just seven steps to a better you. Read like Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, The Glory of Christ by John Owen, Desiring God by Piper. Read everything G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and Tim Keller have ever written. Like, there's, there's great stuff here to be filling your mind with. Follow these guys on social media. Subscribe to their podcasts. Read their blogs, right? Fill your mind with what is truly good. Get some Christian worship music on your Spotify playlist and listen to it, right? Not saying there's not good outside of that. Just saying these are easy ways to be filling your mind with what is truly good. Don't miss them. If this good is what you fill your mind with, what it does is it orients your compass. 
it changes the direction of your life based on what you're filling your mind with. And that's why the second thing we're directed to here is not only to think on the good, but to actually put it into practice, to practice these things. So verse 9 continues, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He's saying, take the good things I've just told you to think about and let them orient the compass of your life so that they become your common practice. But there is an intermediate step there. Notice Paul writing this letter. He says, you have learned and received and heard and seen these things in me. He's saying you can't just think about the good. You have to learn the good. And you have to observe it in the life of someone else. Now, when Paul writes this, he actually knew the people he was writing to. This church in Philippi, a real church of real people that he had interacted with. And so when he lived among them, they got to see him working hard so that he would have something to offer to anyone who was in need. They got to see his generosity to the poor around them and how he worked so as not to be a burden on anyone else. They got to see him rejoicing and praising Jesus even in the midst of genuine suffering. They got to see him speaking the words of the gospel even when he was threatened with imprisonment and when he was actually put in prison in Philippi among them for speaking the words of the gospel. But the reality is, uh, Paul's not here, right? The guy writing this letter, you can't go see him and see his example. You can't actually hear him verbally preaching to you. So what do we do? How do we today apply this message? Well, the good news is he wrote down a lot of his teachings, and that's what we have in the Bible, right? In the Bible, we have the, the, the written down witness of God's people to what is true, honorable, and good. But not only that... He told the people who came after him to take the things he had given them and entrust them to faithful people who would be able to teach others also. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then he told others, imitate these people. And so that's why the church is still here today. It's because people took that up and continued to take the good, live it out, and entrust it to others. So in other words, what you need is a Bible and a church you need to learn the good from God's word. You need to be taught it by people who handle it well. And you need people to imitate who are living out this good in their lives. Now, many will do that as following Paul's vocation. Paul's vocation was he was a full-time minister of the gospel most of his life. Built some tents in there, too. But um, proclaim the gospel as a missionary and as a pastor. And some will do that, where your focus is really going to be on teaching the good and providing an example for others to imitate. But... Whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is true, can be practiced in any vocation. There's a story of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. Someone was converted to Christianity under his influence, and they, the man who was converted was a shoemaker. And he said to Luther, I've become a Christian now. Where, do you, where, where should I go to, to surrender myself and really follow Jesus and take the gospel to foreign lands? And Luther said, I want you to make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Why would he tell him to do that? Because it's just, right? He's saying practice justice in the vocation and in the job that God has already given you. If you're a journalist, you have an opportunity to promote the truth in the way you write stories. If you're a teacher, you have an opportunity to promote what is honorable by what you reward in your students. If you're a lawyer, a police officer, or a social worker, you have an opportunity to promote whatever is just in the way that you do your job. If you're in the field of medicine, you have an opportunity to promote what is pure by fighting infectious disease. Janitors, dishwashers can promote what is pure by providing a clean environment for people to eat and enjoy life. Artists can promote what is truly lovely. 
And in fact, this is why we need Christians writing novels, making movies, producing great artwork, producing great music, because it transmits, it makes sure that the things we are filling our minds with are genuinely the good, right? The true, the honorable, the lovely, the pure. To borrow from Abraham Kuyper again, he says, the job of an artist is to discover in natural forms the order of the beautiful and, enriched by this higher knowledge, to produce a beautiful world that transcends the beautiful of nature. And all this because the beautiful is not the product of our own fantasy, nor of our subjective perception, but has an objective existence, being itself the expression of a divine perfection. There really is a good for the artist to discover and to put to use in producing this beautiful world that transcends even the beauty of nature. But whatever your vocation is, you are a culture maker. What if this vision of the good oriented your compass and became the thing you practiced when you went to work in the morning? What if that was your goal for the day? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, that's what I want to do in the way I do my job. With it. What if that was the thing that oriented your compass in your home, in your family, in your neighborhood, at your favorite restaurant, your favorite coffee shop, your favorite bar, your favorite concert venue, you were going in there with this orientation, with these goals. What if that was the thing that marked our church? That we were a people who taught the good to one another and who lived it out in such a way that it could be impersonated, that it could be practiced by seeing and observing it in the life of our community. Mind-emptying meditation can't produce that. It because think about it. If, if your goal is to escape, if your goal is to transcend the world, where does it point your compass? It points it out of the world, right? It points it away from engagement with the real people and the real problems around you because you're trying to forget them and transcend them in some way. A vision of justice will, will cause me to approach my neighbor differently. A vision of what is just will make me look at my neighbor who may be materially poor, who may be a different race or ethnicity than I am, and cause me to approach them differently. Meditation encourages me not to approach my neighbor at all, to escape and to, to achieve a kind of tranquility. And I'm, not all meditation is like that, but the, the popular kind, right? The, the kind that's a mind-emptying meditation. And what that gets you is a truncated form of peace. It's a peace that only consists in inner tranquility, where I feel at peace. But my relationships are not necessarily reconciled. Injustice may still continue. The peace of the Bible is not just an inner tranquility. It's a wholeness. It's a wholeness, yes, internally, but also in our relationships with others. It's a peace that comes from greater engagement, not greater detachment. But here's the deal. Engagement really is hard, right? It really is hard, actually, to go into a broken world and as a broken person and engage it more deeply. It feels like there's no way peace could possibly come out of that. The truth, if you really think about the truth and try to practice it, it may be inconvenient, right? Sometimes believing a falsehood is more comfortable. If you really think about what is honorable, you may have to deal with the ways, I may have to deal with the ways that I'm not honorable, if I really think about what is just, it may change the way I use my money, the places I choose to live, the schools I choose to send my kids to, the people I choose to interact with, right? So how do you deal with that? Well, when you realize that, 
there's an option, another option that many take today that becomes attractive. And it's to say that there really is no such thing as truth or honor or, or purity. That these are all kind of culturally determined and that anyone who tries to tell you that their definition of truth is one that you also must submit to is trying to abuse you, is trying to oppress you and control you. Because there is no such thing as an ultimate truth that we all, that every news report and every belief must ultimately subject itself to and be judged by. Now, the attractive thing about that, of course, is that now I don't have to worry about what is true changing me, because there is no universal truth that I have to submit to. I don't have to worry about whether the way I use my money, the way I live, is really consistent with justice, because justice is just a social construct that I'm not necessarily subject to by the definition of someone else. I don't have to worry about what is honorable, because what is honor after all? It's just what you say it is. Rather than closing your eyes, this is a kind of x-ray vision that tries to see through everything. It says, oh, you, sure, you, you say there's such a thing as truth, but who are you? What's your play? What are you trying to get at? And this is what the modern person is always trying to do, trying to see through everything. It's kind of a cynicism or a skepticism that can even be present among a lot of Christians. Like, I see it in my own heart a lot. Like, I hear someone promoting something good, and I kind of say, yeah, but come on, we all know that's not how the world really works. But the point of seeing through something... C.S. Lewis pointed this out, is to see something on the other side. So he says, if you have a window in your house, you have that so that you can see your garden, let's say. But what if you tried to see through your garden? What if you tried to see through the soil beneath it and kept seeing through and kept seeing through and kept seeing through? Ultimately, the person who sees through everything sees nothing. If you try to see through every truth claim, if you try to see through every claim to beauty, you end up seeing nothing. And then where does your compass point, right? No vision of the good, where does the compass go? Back to where all of our compasses have naturally gone since Genesis 3, back inward, back to ourselves. And here's the problem. That's where your worry comes from. It's how can I make my life work? Will I succeed in my job? Will I be financially secure in the future? Can I have successful kids? Will I get married? I, 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 me, 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 the compass points back in, and all there is there is more to worry about, right? You're right back to the person who's not in control of the future, who can't make your life work, but you're stuck on this idea that I have to make my life work. But focusing on the good does mean some hard things, right? It means you have to accept someone's definition of the good. And what if they abuse you, right? It means you have to not only use the good to judge art and movies and and music, but to let it judge you that you have to become subject to its standards. And what if you don't measure up? And it means you have to let your compass point outward, that you go into work saying, even if it doesn't get me a promotion today, I'm going to promote whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is true. And what if it doesn't get you the promotion? What if aiming for the corner office and the big paycheck would have gotten you farther along? Now, how can that give you peace? How can that take care of your worry? The answer is at the end of verse 9 here, and this is the key to the whole passage. This is how peace will follow. And the God of peace will be with you. You can have peace when you focus on the good because the God of peace will be with you. And God can be called the God of peace 
because he has, and he is in possession in himself of the truest possible peace. Remember I mentioned earlier that peace is not just inner tranquility, it's wholeness, right? Well, God has both. God has a kind of inner tranquility because God knows he's more powerful than any possible threat. What causes us to worry? It's that we know bad things can happen to us that we don't control that are more powerful than we are. There is nothing that God does not control that is more powerful than he is. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42, Job says, I know that you are God and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Daniel 4, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is in total peace within himself because God always accomplishes his purposes. There is no force more powerful than he is. And not only that, God is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons have no relational tension, no relational problems, because they're always perfectly concerned with loving and serving the other. So God is a God of peace, He knows no threat can disturb him. He knows that within himself there is total peace in his relationships. And yet there was one relationship that lacked peace. And it was God's relationship with humanity. Because we all have taken the world that God created and rather than loving him and enjoying him through it, we've taken those things and enjoyed them as an end in and of themselves. We've taken the feast that God has given us. We've eaten the food and ignored the host. And that creates a tension, that creates a strain, a lack of peace in our relationship with him. But God, being the God of peace, made peace in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is not only say true things, but says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. He is the one truly worthy of honor who has been seated on the throne from before the world began who when Isaiah saw heaven lifted up, he saw him sitting on his throne, holy, 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 with the train of his robe filling the temple. He is worthy. He is the one who was truly pure, who was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He is the one who was truly lovely, who created all the beautiful things, all the things that we find lovely. He's the original that all those things are based of. They were his idea first. If anyone is commendable, if anyone is worthy of praise, if anyone is excellent, it is this Christ Jesus. And yet because he is just, he knew there was a penalty that had to be paid for our disobedience. And therefore he, the beautiful one, became ugly on the cross. It is written of him that he had no beauty that we should desire him, no glory that we should want him, that we should look at him. The one who is the truth received the sentence of a liar. The one who is truly God was tried as a blasphemer. The one who was worthy of honor wore only a crown of thorns, stripped naked and crucified, suffering the most shameful possible death in our place, who was commended only after he was condemned. And yet even being condemned, he was risen from the dead, given the name above every name, the position above every ruler and every authority, so that he is the one truly worthy of honor and now possessing in and of himself an eternal beauty, an eternal loveliness, an eternal commendability that will never be taken away. 
He did all this to make peace in the relationship that lacked it. Peace between humanity and God. As Romans 5.1 puts it, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is real peace. The God of peace is with you, and the God of peace is for you in Christ Jesus. In him, we are made commendable in God's sight, though we're not worthy of commendation in and of ourselves. In him, we can know the God of peace will be with you. I've had opportunity a couple times in my life to travel to third world countries, and both times I've done that, there's been reports of terrorist activity within a month or so of when I left, and me being the really strong and courageous guy I am was scared both times, right? Just like, the activity was nowhere near where I was going, but it was enough to make me from Enola, Pennsylvania, central middle of nowhere, nothing bad ever happens, town, afraid, right? So I get to the airport, and I'm scared, and... Uh, both times I've had the privilege of being greeted by a national, someone from that country, who took me and, and showed me around. And about two hours in, you realize, like, they're not scared, you know? And sure enough, being with them, over some time, my fear starts to kind of go away too. That's a dim shadow of what it's like to walk through life with the God of peace with you. The one who no threat is more powerful than the one who is always in control, and the one you know is for you in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the ultimate good that you need to think on. He is the one who is true, who is just, who is honorable, who is pure, who is lovely, who is commendable. Fill your mind with Christ Jesus. He is the definition of good that you need not fear accepting. You know he's not just giving you a definition of good to oppress you and to maintain his position of power because he laid down his position of power for you. He went to the cross for you. He knows that you fall short of this beautiful standard and that's why he came and obeyed and was the truly good person in your place and died in your place. And if living for, his, living for him and for his good costs you, if it doesn't get you the promotion, and it often doesn't, I mean... If you live a life that's commendable, usually your boss is like that and will commend you for it. But okay, like maybe it's possible that greed would have gotten you farther along. And if you just go to work and your only desire is what is true, what is honorable, and what is pure, and it doesn't get you the promotion, who cares? Jesus Christ has given you the commendation of God, a commendation with an eternal reward that you cannot lose. Peace will not come from meditation it will not come from cynicism or skepticism. It will not come from closing your eyes or trying to develop a kind of x-ray vision that sees through everything. It will come from seeing through things only as far as your eyes land on Christ Jesus, the one who is truly good. Fill your mind with him. Put yourself in a church that will preach him, that will give you examples of how to follow him. Use your vocation to create a culture of goodness and just focus your mind and your life on the goodness of Christ Jesus and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, you are a God of peace, a God who is totally at peace within himself, a God who does whatever he pleases in the heavens or on the earth, and a God who is with us and for us in Christ Jesus, who is himself our peace. We thank you that we can now have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we pray that it would just free us and enable us to just focus ourselves on the good, on what is truly good. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the ultimate true good that we now can focus our minds on. Father, help us to to filter out the junk that is not helping us, that is not truly good, that is just making us more worrisome and disrupting our peace. Help us to fill our minds with whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable. When we think about these things, when we practice these things, and would you be with us, God of peace? We thank you for your promise to be just that. We ask this all in Christ's name.